Thank you, Luann and Grace. We already mentioned this past week we had an opportunity to reach out to children in our community, and it was a great opportunity to just teach them the God's Word. And as I was thinking about this whole week of ministry, it reminded me of the story of this pastor who called up the children. I don't know if it was in a church service, or maybe it was a particular event or activity, and he wanted them all to come up and, and just share with them a biblical truth. And he wanted to tell them the significance of understanding what it means to have a shepherd, and also to recognize that we are called the sheep. And he went and described them as sheep, and he said, you know, you need to understand that as sheep, sheep are not the sharpest animals on this planet. They need a lot of guidance and help, and they need to be directed down certain paths, and if there's not someone there to care for them, they will uh, hurt themselves or hurt others. And they are a, a, an animal that desperately needs someone to care for them and to lead them. And as he went on and on about that particular analogy, then he, he kind of stood up a little bit and said, now, who do you think is your shepherd? And as he was kind of giving that gesture like, um, like you could just imagine, uh, there was a silence there for a moment, and one little boy uh, stood up and said, Jesus. And, you know, that wasn't exactly the answer he was looking and so then he said, well, then, then who am I? And they thought for a moment, and they said, well, you're an old sheepdog. <laughs> and I just passed into one decade this past week, and so I'm feeling more like an old sheepdog this morning. Uh, but we actually have a couple people today, Nancy and Dave, they, uh, their birthdays are today. So if you see Nancy on this side or Dave afterwards, they, they, uh, they are celebrating their birthday. But as you think about... Um, huh? Yeah, if it doesn't happen today, I don't count it. That's why I don't say it. It has to happen today. I'm not going to announce everybody's birthday, but if I happen to notice it's today, then you can, because don't you get to pinch people and all those kind of things if it's on their birthday, so be sure to pinch both Nancy and, uh, and Dave. Uh, but this morning, what I do want to talk about that God treats us just like he treats little ones as his little sheep. He treats up us as his sheep as well, and we desperately need his guidance, and we need to be reminded of his truth, and what it should do for our lives and for the lives of people we care about. And, and last Lord's Day, we, we continued in our series in the book of Genesis, and we talked about how, how God, as he understands the direction we're going, he doesn't want us to continue down that path, and so he does everything he can to, to cause us to turn around and, and make a course direction. And one of the ways he does it, he warns us. If you remember last week, we talked about the warnings of God, and he, he, he does that in so many different ways. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the other side of that, of that truth. Not only does he warn us, he, he also wants to, to rescue us. It, it's one thing to say we're doing, going down the wrong path. The other is saying, well, what is the right path? And what do I need to do? And so this morning, we're going to be looking at that very familiar story that's known to children around the world, but hopefully adults as well. And that's the, that's the story of Noah and his ark. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to see the emphasis of God being a God that rescues. But hopefully as we look at that, we'll see not only how that was done in Noah's day, but also see how that is a picture how, how God continues to do that today. Now, whenever you study God's Word, basically you study God's Word by asking the Word of God uh, some questions. You can ask the Word of God the who question, the what question, the when question, the where question, the why question, and the how question. And, and that's, that's kind of govern our our look at the passage this morning as we look at God being a, a God who rescues. And 
The idea is, that what's, what's the process of being rescued? And we're going to be in with the who question this morning. Who is rescued? If I know that something difficult or bad is going to happen to me, I want to figure, well, how can I get out of that? If judgment's going to fall, then how can I make sure it's not going to fall on me? And, and really, that's what God was doing when he was warning them. Judgment's coming. And he was hoping to provoke in them, well, then how can I somehow get out from underneath that? How can I, be, how can I escape it? How can I be rescued? Well, who, who is rescued? Well, we know in the story, you've already heard the story or seen the movie, it's, it's Noah and his family that's rescued. But why were they rescued? What, what made them qualify to be rescued? Well, it's true in any, anyone who's rescued by God, and it's because the answer to the question who is rescued is anyone who finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we need to understand that when we look at God, we need to understand that it's not our responsibility to give God a grade, it's God's responsibility to give us a grade. And, and on the test papers of our lives before him, what we want to see is not a letter grade, but a word grade, and it's the word grace. Because we will all fail the test of life if we're left to our own resources. And so this morning we want to recognize again that who needs to be rescued or who is going to be rescued, those who find grace in the eyes of the Lord. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, but man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, but I am sorry that I have made them. So he makes a blanket statement that he wished he had never done what he had done. And, of course, that's anthropomorphic language, which simply means he's speaking in human terms. God knew this was going to happen. It wasn't, didn't catch him by surprise, but it burdened his heart that man fell down the direction which he recognized was going to happen because he could see the future just like he sees the present. And he expressed that his heart is broken because of their sin. But then there's an exception to people being evil continually throughout the planet. And verse 8 says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now the word grace is not only a, um, a great name to, to uh, give your child, which is what, what uh, great Grace's parents did, did, did give to her. And it's a great name to, to put on uh, a, a church describing what kind of church it wants to be, a church full of grace. But it's, it's a necessary experience that all of us need to have if we're going to escape God's judgment. But then that backs up the train a little bit, and it says, now, well, how do I get grace from God? Well, there's God's part, and there's our part. God's part has is, is, is been sufficiently done. Our, uh, God's part in, in us being rescued is He gives us grace. Look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we need to recognize the reason Noah was seen to have grace, found to have grace in the eyes of God, is because God had given him grace, and he had, re- and he had done something with that grace. He had accepted it. But it first came from God. No one comes to God on their own. If God is not reaching out for us, we would never come into relationship with him. So God gives the, grace, the gift of grace or the gift of help, the gift of provision, the gift of favor. And it lands on those who want it. Well, if you want God's grace, if you want to be found as being seen in grace in the eyes of the Lord, then what must you do? God does his part. He gives grace. Our part is that we must, what the Bible says, repent and believe. Some people said in the 
21st century church, the word repent is the forgotten word of the gospel. That we talk about people believing in Jesus. But do we, do we talk enough about repenting so you're in a place to fully and truly believe in him? And that's where the Gospels often in the New Testament put in repent and believe language. In, in Luke 13, 3, it says this, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And if you want to read the story behind that, it's a graphic story about people perishing. And somehow feeling, well, maybe God didn't like them as much as he likes other people. He said, no, everyone, everyone will perish unless they pass the repentance test. What does it mean to repent? In your outline, simply put it this way. You must turn from sin. A couple other authors put it this way. Repentance is is a two-sided look at life. It looks upon things in the past with a weeping eye and upon the future with a watchful eye. What is that saying? If you really repent or turn from your sin, you look back at what you have done and say, "How, how could I do that? And it just causes you sorrow and pain. It's not just simply being caught. It's saying, I just wish I had never done that. It breaks my, it breaks my heart that I fell into that. And so much a desire that it's not only looking back at the past with a weeping eye, but looking to the future with a watchful eye, saying, I no longer want to go down that path ever again. Another author, author put it this way, true repentance hates the sin and not merely the penalty. And it hates the sin most of all because it breaks the heart of God. So if we're going to come into a relationship with God, then we, we've got to have that settled, that we don't want to live the life we've always lived. And we looked at that our lives will never measure up on our own. We must turn from our sin. But on the other side of that, we don't not only turn from something, we turn to someone and that's what faith is. It's, it's turning to someone, or to put it this way, it's trusting in the Savior. It, it's, re, it's recognizing that you're out there in the ocean and you are drowning, and the lifeguard comes out, instead of fighting the one who comes to rescue you or save you from drowning, you, you, you surrender to the one who came to rescue you. You know what's the worst thing you can do to someone who, who's trying to, to save you when you're drowning? <laughs> is to try to fight them or try to, or try to help them save you. What you need to do is totally what? Surrender and relax and, get, and, and just totally give yourself to the person who's come to rescue you. So as we think about the very simple thing, God is a rescuing God and recognize who is it he rescues. He rescues those who are found in his grace. And as we think about, well, how does this work? We need to recognize the very simple truth. God does his part. He gives grace. Our part is that we must receive grace, and we receive grace by repenting, turning from our sin, and then believing, trusting in Him as the Savior. And it's really, it's got to be something more than just superficial lip service to God. You know, someone has written this way, you can't expect to live in heaven later if you really want to live like hell now. And that's using those language words appropriately. Yeah, I want to go to heaven. I mean, who, who wants to go to the, the alternative? But if you really want to live in heaven, then you've got, to, you've got to live like you want to live that life now. Not ever done perfectly. But you can't play games with God because God will always win that game. He, he knows if it's just lip service. 
God does his part. He gives grace, but we must receive it by turning and repenting in our faith relationship with him. The Bible says in Acts 16, 31, so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Okay, that's who is rescued. Secondly, what happens when you are rescued? And this is kind of looking back at it. Well, how do I know if I've truly believed? How do I know if I've truly repented? And you could put it this way. God will make changes in your life. Maybe not as quickly as you would hope. Maybe not as dramatically as you had expected. But God will make changes. And if he doesn't make any changes, then you probably don't have the change agent in your life. God will make a difference. And he did in Noah's life. And we could see that. Look at verse 9 in Genesis chapter 6. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. I didn't say this in the first service, but I'll just mention it here. It's interesting, the order of events here. We have the statement that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Then we see the change in action. It's not vice versa. It doesn't, well, because he was such a just man, he was such a perfect man, uh, he, he had a tendency to walk with God. Because of that, I'll give him grace. No, that's not how it works. You get grace, which means you repent and believe. Then the, then the life begins to change. And he was just, and he was perfect, and he walked with God. What does that mean? Well, he became just. You become just when you become a follower of God. And that simply means you, you are a person, just like one of the steps that come to know God, you put your faith in God, and when you put your faith in God, now people can put their faith in you. You have trusted in that which is very the, the, the ultimate trustworthy person, which is God himself. And when you trust in him, then, then people can now learn to trust in you. Now, there, there should be no such thing as a dishonest Christian. I mean, it's, it's an oxymoron. How, how can you be dishonest when you're connected to someone who is the way, the truth, and the life? Now, are we sometimes dishonest? Yeah, but that ought to be the exception rather than the rule. That we are just people. We are fair-minded people. We are people that can be trusted. People can put their faith in us because we're just. But then it goes on and says you become perfect. And you say, whoa, wait a minute. I thought Christians were, for, were just forgiven, not perfect. Well, he's not talking here about the ultimate sense that we, we always do that which is right and never do that which is wrong. Really what it's saying here, it's almost a, a, a sense of description of the, the type of person you are on the inside. Sometimes we think of perfection only being that which shows externally, but it begins with something that has to be from the heart. And really, it's not shown the outline exactly like that, but it, the next two lines in your outline kind of explains what perfection we're talking about here. It means, it, it comes from a Hebrew word meaning to be, become complete, which means you're given what's missing. Hopefully when you were on the outside in, as it relates with God, when you were kind of looking to discover who God is because God was drawing you to himself, and as you looked at maybe some rational reasons why you ought to become a, 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 a child of, of Christ, uh, you, you looked at maybe the, the, the truth of the story and a variety of things that's happening, but you began to look at people who are Christ followers. I, I know that happened to me even at an early age. And, and I, I came to the, the clear realization that some people had what I didn't have. I came to that conclusion that something was missing in my life. Remember that experience? Voltaire, I think it was, the one who said that we're all brought in this world with a God-shaped vacuum. And really, that's what people do throughout their life. They're just filling their lives with that's what they think will satisfy. You know, that's why some people go down the materialism 
world, uh, world grow. They all, they're always trying to fill their things up with their life with things, just things. And, and, and maybe some, it's adventure. They, they, they can't ever sit still. They've got to drive something different every time. They, this, they have to have adventure. Some of you, all I want is a nap. But, it, but whatever it is, you know, sometimes you've you got to fill your life up with something. All right? And God said, you'll never fill it up with family or friends or things. You've you got to fill it up with God. And that's what it meant he was perfect, that now he was a person who didn't have anything missing in his life. The next word actually has the same idea. You become whole. And on the outline it says, you have no more holes in your life. He's the God that fills the gaps. That's what it means to be perfect. But then you have the other line there in verse 9. And Noah walked with God. You can't walk with God until you know God. You can't can't be a person that experiences the grace of God until you have the grace of God. And so he walked with God. What does it mean to walk with God? It, it simply means that you become obedient to God. We'll just look at a couple of the references there. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 22. That's the end of this chapter. Then Noah did according to some of the things that God commanded him. Is that what it says? Now it says that Noah did according to all that God commanded him to do. The same idea found in, uh, I think it's 7 verse 5. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Now, does that mean he never messed up? We're not, that's not the point there. The point is that his life was going down one particular direction. When God said it, that settled it. When God said jump, he said, how high? You know, did he fall short sometimes? Of course he did. But his heart attitude was to do what God told him to do. And with that, it demonstrated that he truly walked with God. So, the process of being rescued. Who's rescued? Those who find grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's God's part and our part. What happens when you are rescued? God makes changes in your life. Thirdly, why do we need to be rescued? And even though this has already been emphasized throughout this series in the book of Genesis, let's, let's look at it again. Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. What a bleak description. You know, sometimes we've talked about here, we all think that our generation wasn't quite as bad as which generation? Today's generation, right? I wouldn't want to live in today uh, much, you know. We always think that today's generation is worse than the generation before us. Uh, let me just tell you, it's always been bad. And there are some ways that we are worse off now than we were ever were before, but it's always been bad. And the reason is because we all fall short of the glory of God. That's what Romans 3.23 is about. And, and there's some word description of that. The Bible says that that land was corrupt and it was violent. What does it mean to be corrupt? We, we think of someone doing a dishonest deal or something like that, and that would be a, a, an illustration of that. But really, the word corrupt means to be destructive. And isn't that, isn't that happening all the time? People, people are doing things that just hurt themselves. And that's what sin is. Sin is not simply something that is arbitrary, arbitrarily made wrong by the supreme being in the universe. He looks down and says, well, okay, I'll call that right and I'll call that wrong. That'll be good and that'll be bad because I just want to make it that way. 
Now, he understands things that, that we do that will be self-destructive as well as destructive to the people around us. And when we're corrupt, we do that thinking we're getting ahead when we're not. And violent. You know, you know hurt people hurt people. And, and we're hurting people all the time around us. And that's all that God saw and judgment was coming. Why do we need to be rescued? Because we are doing that which breaks the heart of God and destroys that which he made that was good and very good. You know, this, this past... How many, how many, when did you start making this train up here? February. February. Since February, Rich has painstakingly... Uh, and it, it, I, Did you have a few things that didn't quite work exactly how you thought they worked the very first time you did it? All of them, all right? I mean, he was working like crazy. Now, most of the time, I haven't had an in-depth interview with him, but most of the time, the things that didn't work, as he looked around, the only person he could blame was himself. You know, he didn't do it exactly how he wanted or he thought it was going to work this way, it didn't work. But, but let's say we added to his inv- adventure in, in, the, in putting this train together. And it, it, most of the stuff was in the, in the bin. He didn't know I did that, but I went in there and I, I kind of tweaked things all the time, just kind of messed with it so that he'd have more fun when he was creating it, you know. You know, that's what people do. You know, they, they just mess with people. And, and God said, look, this is a mess. It was all good and very good, and we've messed it up. So then God says, okay, I'm going to bring judgment. And this is the story. I want to read the account, and then we're going to look at, well, do we really believe this actually happened, and how could it happen? How we, why do we need to be rescued? Because we have messed up God's good and perfect world. Well, how are we rescued? Look what he rewrites. Genesis chapter 6, 13 to, to chapter 7, verse 6. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Remember that because we're going to go back to that idea. And cover it inside and outside with pitch. And, and this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300, cu- 300 cubits. And you go, what is a cubit? It's width 50 cubits and it's height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all the food that is eaten, and you shall gather to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus God, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, and so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household. Behold, I have seen you, that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and female, two each of the animals that you are unclean a male and four and his female, also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. 
And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. Now, we're going to address this next and last question for this morning. On We've looked at the who is rescued, those who find grace in the eyes of the Lord. There's God's part and there's our part. We, look at the, uh, that, we looked at the question, what happens when we're rescued? God makes changes. And who, why did we need to be rescued? Because we have fallen so short of God. We have corrupted this world and made this world a violent place. And then we ask, well, how, how does he rescue? Well, how God rescues, to put it in a principle, you could put it this way. God rescues by doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. God rescues us by doing for, for us what we can't do for ourselves. You know, think about when God told Noah to build an ark, was he capable of building an ark, a vessel, on his own? I mean, he had never even seen a vessel like that. The, when the floodgates were coming, he, he couldn't imagine having to create something that you could float in such a, a large dimension. God had to give them specific instructions. It's interesting, they've done some things on there. I guess in, in terms of boats and things that need to be flowed in certain dimensions, they have to be either in a 6 to 1 or 8 to 1 dimension, and that's exactly what's found here. As far as we know, Noah was, was a, just a preacher of righteousness. He didn't know how to do anything. He probably didn't know one end of the hammer from the other. And, and God had to give him specific instructions, empower him to, to get his sons involved in this project, probably maybe hire out various places uh, people in the community to be a part of the project. And, and God uh, allowed him to build that which was beyond probably his own ability to do. And, and as we think about whenever God rescues us, he, he rescues us beyond our own ability. But, but in the building of the ark, we can see how God did something which we could at least at, on a certain dimension understand. As you look at this boat, and it's interesting, this boat, in, in the reading I've done, that that a boat this size had never been built until the 19th century. Until our recent ability to build big ocean liners, we had never seen any ship anywhere near this size. And, and as, he began, as God gave them dimension, he said it's going to be uh, 450 cubits wide, th- uh, 300 cubits wide, uh, long, uh, 50 cubits wide, and its height will be 30 cubits as well. Well, what is that? Unless you have a study Bible uh, with notes be- be- below it, or maybe a of read about this. You're going, what is a cubit? Basically, a cubit was the, was the link between your elbow and your longest finger. Now, as you're thinking about that, well, that could be a little bit different in dimensions because some people's link between their elbow and their longest finger is different. Well, that was true back those days as well. The Babylonians, basically, they, they said a cubit was a little over 20 inches. The uh, Egyptians, they had, uh, their cubit was about... Um, no, the Babylonians were about 19 inches. The Egyptians were 20 inches, or 20 and a half inches. And they also had a shorter one that you said was 17.6 inches. The Hebrews, interesting enough, they had two, two forms. They had an old, a long one that was about 20 and a half inches. And then they had a shorter one that was 17.5 inches. Most people, as they look at the cubit in the Bible, the common dimension was 18 inches. Uh, this, uh, this morning between the services, I was trying to do that before the service, but I couldn't find a, a, um, a tape measure. But I was thinking, you know, if... if most of you have met Brandon, our, who works with our youth, and he's a little bit taller than I am, and he has fairly long limbs and things like that. There's a, probably a difference between his cubit and my cubit. If you look at my, if you were to measure my cubit, the difference between my my elbow and my longest finger is about 19 inches. If, if you measure Brandon, it's it's a good 21 inches, a little over 21. In fact, Brian's his is about 21 inches over there. I said, well, I wonder what the difference between men and women are. So I went around to a number of the. The, the ladies in the first service, and theirs was under 17. 
And so basically what God says, though, is I want you to take a measurement, and the common measurement in that day was about, uh, most authorities will say it was probably about 17 and a half uh, inches. Well, if you, if you multiply that out, basically what you have in this ark, it was 438 feet long, it was 73 feet wide, it was 44 feet high, and it had 1.4 million cubic feet in volume. Now you think, okay, now that's the dimensions, but what does that do for me? Just how was he able to put all the animals of the world on that particular vessel? Well, part of what we need is just thinking in terms of just simple terms. One is what is 1.4 million uh, uh, cubic feet of volume, uh, what would that contain? Well, looking at this, this train behind us is that once you have the engine and then you have the, uh, the coal car which feeds the engine, the steam engine, then you have the, the rail, uh, the, what do you call those? The... Yes, all right, then you have those, all right? Well, if, if you look at railroad cars, okay, they, they said that basically the volume, 1.4 million cu- uh, cubic feet of volume, would basically end up being about 522 rail cars. Some will say up to maybe 569. And then if you say, well, how many, what, how many animals could you put in a rail car? Well, they, they took the dimension of a sheep, uh, uh, average size sheep, and they said you could put 240 sheep in a rail car. All right, and if you, you know, take all those rail cars and times by 240 sheep, basically what you got is about 125,000 animals, uh, or at least sheep. And so you say, well, I guess that you could put 125,000 sheep in that, in that ark. And basically, if you look at the ark, if you if visualize it, it had, had three decks, three levels, each about 15 feet in terms of height. And then there were compartments or rooms within it. But you're still thinking, well, you know, 125,000 sheep, but some, some of those animals they had put on there were, were larger than a sheep. Uh, and I think if we thought about it for any dimension, we recognize that most animals would be a lot smaller than a sheep. I mean, you've got little lizard, lizards, you've got little mice, you've got little animals that wouldn't take up a whole lot of space. But, but think about it for a moment. Here's the kind of the simple reasoning. If, if you were going to take animals on a ship voyage, and it rained 40 days and 40 nights, but they, they didn't get to land after 40 days and 40 nights because there was no land to lay on, right? Water covered the earth. And it took a while for the land to dry out. In fact, that while was a little over a year. And so you're saying, well, if I was on a ship for over a year with these animals, what, what I, what, if I had to take this, uh, two of each kind, you know, what, if I had a choice to make, would I take the biggest version of each, uh, each animal or would I take the, the smaller version? Would I take the adult size of a giraffe or would I take the little size of the giraffe? Which one would you pick? I take the little one. Have you ever seen those cartoon pictures and they have the Noah's Ark and they got the giraffe's head sticking out? Okay, I, I don't think that happened. Okay, I think I, he picked a little giraffe, not a big giraffe. And I think the same thing. If I had an elephant to put on the Ark, would I take the big elephant or would I take the little elephant? I take the little elephant. Now you think, well, well how, you know, he had to put food on it, and if he put food on it, how is he going to feed those animals for a whole year? Well, think about it for a moment. Uh, we have certain uh, animals, during the winter, they decide to what? Hibernate. And when they're hibernating, they probably don't what a lot? Eat a lot. Okay? And so my, my thought is it's quite possible what he did as far as get, making this whole thing work. He took a lot of those animals and he, he did to them what I do to you every Sunday. I put you to 
sleep, right? That's what I. That's my job is to put you to sleep for an hour. You get well rested for whatever you do on in the afternoon. So, so he, so he put them all to sleep, or not all of them, but he put a vast majority of them to sleep, and they probably didn't have to eat as much. In fact, one author I read, he said probably the food that was put on there, it's quite possible a lot of that food was used when they first got off the boat. And so they would be more nourished for, for reconnecting with the environment that God left for them. And so as you, as you begin to think about it, you say, well, you know, I, I see this could possibly happen. Now maybe you thought, well, how many, how many animals were on, were on the ark? Well, part of the problem with determining some of the specifics is we don't know, did he do it by our designation of animals, which would be like species, you know, what represents the kind of the, of the Old Testament with, with how we look at animals. But if you look at it from a species perspective, is, you know, some people say today that there's about 18,000 animal species. And, and by the way, I didn't say this in the first service either, but as you think about the, the list of specifics about uh, the Noah's Ark experience, is, is God didn't have to put I- any fish on the boat. Okay? So all the, all the fish, you know, they, were, they were just swimming around. Okay? Uh, so he was just talking about birds and animals. But they say there's about 18,000 species. Now, being honest about that, there have been species that have been, become extinct with as far as what's now alive today. Well, if you, take, if you take the fossil record and they say it looks like kind of a round number, there's about the possibility of 18,000 species that have become extinct since recorded history. So if you take the 18,000 plus the 18,000, you come up with what? 36,000. So you take the 36,000, you say, well, yeah, but you had to make two, two of each animal. So now if you take the 36,000 times by two, this is a math class this morning, you now have what? 72,000. So one estimate is you, is you begin like, well, I, they could have had like maybe 72,000 animals on, on that ark. And you say, well, what about the clean animals? Well, we don't know exactly how many clean animals there were because there aren't a whole lot of specific designations of them and how many were really living at that time. Some author said, one author said that you know, they had extra, extra animals that, had, that were clean animals. Let's throw in another 3,000 in. I didn't read the, the, the multiple pages on why he thought there was only 3,000 left. But that would be a total of 75,000 animals. We take the 75,000 animals, and if you compare them to sheep, and we know we have different sizes of animals, but if you take the comparison, you had 125,000 sheep, you got 75,000 animals. Now you've only used maybe you know, 60% of the capacity on that. And so many people, as they look at the ark, they say, you, you, we don't even have to use the 1.4 million cubic feet of volume just to house all the animals. You still have spaces of, 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 uh, of usable area for other things. So as we look at the ark, the ark, and God did some miraculous things, getting all the animals there at the right time and and we know some ways God could, could do that instinctively. We know that people have my, people, animals have migration tendencies. And a lot of times animals will know a change in a climate or, uh, or weather quicker than we will. And, and so there's a variety of ways that God could have brought all the animals to that ark area when the day in which um, the floods were to come. Now, now I, I say all those things simply to say that as we look at the story of the ark, it's not just something fanciful that we, we think that it's a great story with a moral uh, for us to remember. But I do want us to understand, we don't, on the other hand, want to leave it as just a, an example of God's power bringing this all to pass miraculously at the time and point in which he wanted to bring it to pass. Is there's an illustration of what God does in terms of rescuing us. How he does it is providing for us what we can't do for ourselves. 
You know, when you build a boat, I've never built a boat. I'm not good at building hardly anything. But if you were to build a boat, you want to make sure when you put that boat on the water that it would not sink. And when things sink, that's usually because there's some kind of a leak, right? And so in the details of the story, it says that when he, had, when he put the boat together, or the, the ark together, he used gopher wood. And we don't know a whole lot about a gopher wood, but probably it's pretty good wood to, to build the boat. But what they did with the boat is they, they put pitch on it on the inside, on the outside. And they put pitch on the outside and the inside so it would not leak or sink. Now, it's interesting how God inspired the writer of Genesis, probably Moses, to, to use a specific word for the word pitch. The word for pitch in the Old Testament is the word covering. And it's also found in a place in Leviticus for a word used for atonement. And so what we have here is a picture, and I'm not going to read the passage in, in, in Peter, which is in your outline, which, which speaks of us, kind of a theological treatise there, that, that Christ is the antitype of the type in the Old Testament. Noah and the ark was the type, it was the example, it was the illustration of the real way that we are rescued, which is by Jesus. And it says that we are, we are saved by baptism. Now, he's not talking about water baptism, but he's saying we, we are saved by that which God provides. Now, what they were saved from in that day was the judgment going to be brought by God by the waters of judgment. And they were saved by the ark, which preserved them from the judgment of God. We are saved not by the, the covering that saved that boat from the waters of judgment. We are saved by the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ that prevents the judgment on our sin to be leaked out onto our lives. And so as we look at the ark, we recognize that it was the covering by which the judgment of God were not experienced by those who were found in grace in the eyes of the Lord. And when we look at our lives, we will escape the judgment of God by being in the grace in the eyes of the Lord by being covered or atoned for by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word atonement is an interesting word. It's a word, again, we don't probably use in our everyday language, but really, some people say it's at, at one minute, or it, it's being brought back to unity or oneness, or it is the idea of being reconciled to that which you're far from. And, and see, that's what, that's what the ark did for Noah and his families. It brought them back into the presence of God, safe and secure. And when we're atoned by God, we're brought back into a relationship with God who made us and then sent his son to die for us. So as we look at the story of God rescuing, and we look at the story of the ark, it was that which God provided for them so they would be rescued for the judgment that came. When we look at what happened at the cross for us, we are rescued for the judgment that will come by the covering or atonement that was accomplished on the cross for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, it talks about, about people rest, wrestling with, with God rescuing. And that day, as they were seeing Moses, Moses, as they were seeing Noah build the ark, they were saying, this is not going to, what, what are you doing? This is, this is foolishness. Why are you spending 120 years to build a boat that you can't navigate, you can't, steer, it's, it's not built for, for speed, you're just building this big bar, why are you, what, 
And he said, this is what's going to rescue me from the judgment of God. In, in the days right after Jesus' resurrection and crucifixion, and people were believing in that, so what, what are you believing in? The Jewish people said, where's the sign in this? Did, did God make this so clear that we couldn't miss it in the Old Testament? They said, no, we, we're, they, they couldn't get it, even though it had been stated over and over and over again. They were looking for one more miracle to convince them. For, for the, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, they said, well, is that we look at the cross, it's just, it's just silliness. Uh, we want something a little bit more complicated or esoteric or something that just you know, expands our mind and it got, you know, some kind of path that would just, you know, something hard that we could, if we did that, God would accept us. And no, you, you can't, you can't do anything. It's just, it's only what God has done. And that's how God rescued in the Old Testament. That's how God rescued in the New Testament. It's sometimes that which is foolishness to us. Sometimes we're saying, well, I want one more miracle to, t- to convince me that what you're telling me is the truth. And God is saying, look it, you are messed up. You need to be rescued, and I am the only one who can provide for you what you can't provide for yourself. And you need to be covered from your sin. Just like the pitch covered the ark of that day, you need the blood of Jesus Christ to cover you so that you will not experience the judgment of God that is coming. We are left with two, two things that are marker light. One, that we are sure that we are covered. And just like in Noah's day, that we are, we are reaching out to tell people there's, there's only one way to be rescued. And that day it was the ark. And, and this day it's the cross. Who are we concerned about enough to, to give the words of, of rescue to them about what God has provided? Let's pray. Now, Father, I just, I just ask that you might Cause each of us to be sure about where we stand before you. Might we know that you, you are, and you alone are the one who can cover our sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, I help people even this day to turn from their sin and turn to the Savior, to put their complete trust in him. And then, Father, we pray also that you might cause us to, to want to rescue those who are outside of Christ. Help us to keep telling the good news to people who's seen and not to want to hear, but maybe one more time they'll respond to the message. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.